Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, where we strive for the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Greetings, I'm Scott Postma, your host, and joined by Joffrey Swate, co-host. And today, Joffrey, we're going to talk about norms and nobility. Norms and nobility is a treatise on education by David Hicks. And this is uh, this is something you recommended for us. Yeah, so Norms and Nobility has been around for a while. I think it was first published in 81 and became sort of a staple in the early 90s when the homeschool movement and, and the um, kind of you know reform education movement. Um, and uh, Hicks um, is, is, he speaks authoritatively and uh, academically on this issue. And I think this has been one of those works that has long been uh, treated and thought about by classical educators. And so I thought it might yeah. be a good time to, to unpack it a little bit and just um, to be honest, just have a casual conversation about our own reading of it and we'll take it in bite-sized pieces. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole book is fascinating coming from the perspective of someone who attended both Oxford and Princeton, uh, and yet, um, you know, made an educational career in Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so that, you know, this is, is, you know, later on in the book, he'll talk about what, uh, one of the problems with classical education catching on is his perception as being for the elites, but you know, he experienced that side yeah. uh, of, of education. And yet, you know, there's, this is a, a quintessentially American book for Americans. So I'm looking forward to starting in the, in the preface and just kind of getting some of his overarching, overarching ideas. Um, but we've, we're going to get a few pretty, amazing episodes out of this book. Yeah, I think so. So we'll, we'll deliver this serially in, in terms of um, maybe taking it apart chapter by chapter or idea by idea. But today we're just going to talk about some of the big ideas that he sets forth in the prologue. And hopefully our listeners will get an, uh, an overarching sense of, of where he's going, the trajectory of the book and, and the ideas. And, and I'll start by um, reading his thesis and, um, and then kind of with some context to that thesis, is that um, Hicks is really looking at a, a way of bringing classical education into the American school education system as a way of reform. And, and so while we, you know, we probably have a little bit more radical idea in terms of, you know, abolishing, you know, the public school, uh, he really wants to bring reform, but, but there's a lot of great, great ideas that um, we'd love for you to interact with us about. So without further ado, let me read the um, thesis. He says, my purpose in writing this book is to offer a personal interpretation of classical education, its ends as well as some of its means, and to respond to the objections of those who might approve of the goals of such an education, but who believe that it cannot meet the needs of an industrial democracy or that it is not feasible as a model or mass education. So he is a proponent uh, of classical education being not for the elite, as you mentioned, yep. but for the masses. Well, you know, it's interesting that he, he starts out talking on a societal level because, you know, he, he later on in the book will, will make some, some great arguments for exalting the education of each individual yes. and individualizing uh, education. But he still, he has a societal um, approach. And I, I have to admit, and maybe this is just, you know, I'm just, you know, too old and too cynical, but 
but I kind of don't care about, <laughs> you know, like uh, here, here I am. I, I live in this town with my brothers and sisters and my church. I've got my kids. Uh, and, and what am I concerned with? I'm concerned with, with raising my kids and educating them well with even my own education. Yeah. I love that you are educated and you're seeking your education. So for me, the biggest that education really gets is, is community. And, you know, and after that, I sort of lose track. I kind of don't care what's going on in Indiana, uh, except that Christians be strong. And and that's understandable, especially, you know, in light of our modern, you know, bringing the whole through social media, bringing the whole world into our laps. Right. right. So we, we have this, you know, angst about everything going on around us. And, and maybe there is an argument somewhere and maybe reserve this for a different time, an argument for a reform of public education. I think I'm of the mindset that there is a possibility to reform public. And then the public education and government education are different things. Yes. That's, right? that's my point. Yes. The, the government education is not public education in our modern positivist um, society. Government automatically equates to public, right? And, and we certainly don't agree with that. No, here. that's right. And, you know, he, he presents a meta problem. So of course there's, you know, he's going to, then present meta solutions. Uh, but that being said, uh, the, the book itself is, which is short, by the way, you should definitely pick it up and, and, and read, read a copy yourself. Oh, dear listener. Um, but yeah, it it does a great job of, of connecting at, at every level from the individual up to the family and, and on. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm also just kind of following up on that. I'm of the mindset that this public education is very community minded. So whatever we do for the mass could be duplicated in our communities, right? In the right. communities. All right. So with that, so one of the first things that I think um, in his goal of talking about classical education, what it is, what its ends are, you know, some of its means, he's not going to um, apparently have a, a complete treatise of that. He raises this idea that in philosophy usually boils down to is versus ought. And he talks about it in terms of descriptive versus prescriptive. Yes. And he says that um, my wish is not, however, to banish science from the modern curriculum, but to save it. <laughs> I, we, we, we may not want to take too much time here, but I, but I love that statement because what classical education uh, contrary to what a lot of people think about it yeah. wants to do is it wants to save, it's not against science. It wants to save science from scientism. Right. That's right. To put, to put science where it belongs, right. which is uh, on middle earth <laughs> you know, in an intermediate sort of, sort of level, um, which, you know, he, he unpacks later in the book. So we'll probably do a whole episode uh, dedicated to this subject but you know, if science is awareness, if science is the study of phenomena, if science is the study of nature, then it cannot be the highest thing, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, just just by yeah. definition, and whatever uh, Fauci and 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 his cohorts <laughs> are rolling out for us isn't science. You mentioned scientism, yeah, uh, which is generally usually defined as 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 the the religion of science, right? But uh, you know, anytime anything is out of its place. We're talking about idolatry, right? That and and that's really what happens to science when it's you know what what he talks about here. And so what he puts what he puts up there is is I think you know the word and words and language 
And so that's where, you know, you mentioned the prescriptivist, descriptivist uh, dichotomy. It becomes very interesting. And for me personally, as a language teacher and mm-hmm. as a, an enthusiast for linguistics, I mean, grammar nerds everywhere know that, you know, there's prescriptivism and descriptivism. And, you know, I mean, of course, we all think we're the good guys, but, <laughs> but you know, descriptivists want want to say that, you know, the language is what it is. Mm-hmm. And if people use this word this way, then that's valid. And it should be in the dictionary until people stop using it that way. Ain't, ain't a word or <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then, yeah, you have prescriptivists who say ain't is not a word. Right. Uh, which to me seems ridiculous on the on, on the face of it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so ain't is not a word. It's not, you know, we're, we're going to prescribe. We're going to be prescriptive about what uh, what English is. And so that's on one level, right? Just the use of, of, yep. of a language. But then when we start talking about philosophy, the philosophy of education, then you know, we're, we're, you know, he, he wants to tell us that education needs to be prescriptivist. Right. And, and I love that because it, it takes us all the way back to our science comment earlier. He says that the modern, let me pull it up so I can read this here. The modern educator's inchoate understanding of science his naive belief in its all-sufficiency and his unwillingness to acknowledge its methodological limitations are leading to a reaction and revulsion against it. Now, I, I want to maybe forego our conversation about, you know, he's sort of foreseeing the activist, um, uh, you know, the, the postmodern activism, what, what has become the critical theorist uh, revulsion to absolute truth. He's, he's sort of anticipating that here. <laughs> But he says, if descriptive science is to aid our schools and flourish in them, it must remain in the service of a prescriptive ideal. So you're right. He is calling for a prescriptive ideal in education versus a descriptive evaluation, if we will, or, or, or what it is, how, how the educating um, uh, or, or uh, what does he call them? The basically the bureaucrats, the way we do it, the applied uh, social research scientists, how they see human the technicians. Yes. yes, this is how it works, and so this is what we need to do better at making it work better the way it is. And he says, no, that's not the solution to education. We need a prescriptive ideal. So hold on, does that mean that that we're always going to study such and such a thing at such and such a time? Um, or I mean, like, what does prescriptivist mean in in this case? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question, and there's a different a variety of different ways we could unpack that. But let me just take his words here, where he says a couple of pages later, he talks about the idea of um, let me find it here. He says the ideal type embraced Gilgamesh's love for Enkidu and David's love for Jonathan. Odysseus is risking his precarious safety to hurl gratuitous insults at the Cyclops, and Achilles deciding at the dawn of human history to die at the supreme moment of glory rather than live through the long, wizening, connubial years. He says what made these stories valuable was not their historical authenticity or experimental demonstrability, but their allegiance to a pattern of truth. Okay, I love yeah. I love that that the word history is in there because he also he 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 quotes Will Durant, you know, so <laughs> uh, you know so Will Durant and his wife whose name whose name eludes me right now Ariel, that's right yeah 
uh, well, a couple of scoundrels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they, they were the quintessential pop modern historians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and every used bookshop from, from the Mississippi to the Rhine uh, for 50 years had their books uh, and you know, have them all the whole set. <laughs> there you go. But you know, there's uh, you know, so he, in, in, uh, in this prologue here, uh, Hicks t- quotes Will Durant talking about how, how blessed and enlightened the Renaissance was and how benighted and blighted uh, the middle ages were right. <laughs> Even just that term middle ages. And then he makes a comment. It's really what I thought was a, a very cutting comment. This is Hicks himself. The equation of truth with science is peculiarly modern, as is the assumption that the science of the ancients desired to be turned into a technology, uh, let's see, seeking to mold, aiming to mold the future. Yeah. Right. So just <clears throat> the, it, we, there are all these modernist assumptions that we have, you know, we used to read back and through time and well those those ancients were lame compared to us because they didn't have X and Y. Well, maybe they didn't want x and y (laughs) maybe they had a whole different project (laughs) for their education yes yeah so progress technology this becomes the aim of the modern uh, educator and what hicks is going to argue for is this ideal type Um, that is what we need more of so while we recognize these are myths for example he says we're, we're not we're not saying that they're necessarily true they are an ideal to set before our students. They are an ideal in terms of, he calls them a pattern of truth. Yeah. When you say ideal type, the ideal type we're, we're speaking specifically of, of, of humans. Yes. Right? right. There's not an ideal type of learning French. He's talking about no, no, no. these are, I, these are, yeah. these are men that yep. we, that we look upon yes. as ideal types. Yeah. So, so what, do, what does a hero look like? And, and maybe just take a, uh, an example out of modern history. So, you know, I, I remember as a kid hearing the story of uh, George Washington, you know, chopped down a cherry tree and his yeah. dad came and asked him, you know, and now, you know, then later on historians like, well, that probably never happened. And yeah, it's yeah. not true. It doesn't matter. Right. Right. The ideal type is set before us as a pattern of truth. What is the purpose of education, right? right? Is it to know the fact that upon this day, George Washington manipulated sound waves with his lungs and mouth (laughs) in this, you know, in this sequence of words came out? Of course not. No, that has nothing. Yeah. It has absolutely nothing to do with what education is because really at the end of the day, what do all those facts even mean? Right. So, so here we are talking about the prescriptivist descriptivist, right? Cause you know, if we're talking about, you know, there is one ideal type. So we're talking about imitatio Christi. Uh, you know, there's what we're, what we're talking about here is one of the ways this prescriptivist thing works. Like yes. be like David. Yep. Right. Uh, and so then, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that there's a prescription, there's a recipe, there's this thing that we look at. And, you know, later on in the book, he'll talk about the dialectic of like, you know, living in that and then surpassing that. Right. Right. So one can decide I'm going to learn everything I can about being like David and then I'm going to be better than David. Right. But there's, there's still like, there's this, you have to actually be able to put yourself in the type and understand it. 
It's what we've done, speaking of David and Jonathan, is what we've done with David and Goliath, right? I mean, that that story has, even outside of Christianity, has served as a sort of type, an ideal type. Yes, and uh, Paul Washer starts yelling about, you're not David. David. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh-oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah, theologically, no, I'm Israel, standing over there on the side of the mountain, shaking in my boots, and, you know, and, and Christ is our David. But Society has used that in education and teaching, this sort of ideal type that we've got Goliaths to face. But you you mentioned a moment ago Christ being that ideal type, and Paul even says that, right, that that we are to strive until we uh, grow up into the measure of the fullness of Christ. I mean, that is, that is what um, – our, our spiritual discipline, our spiritual formation is all about. And I'm, I'm of the mindset, and I think Hicks later on talks about this, you know, in, in terms of transcendence, that education is discipleship in a sense, right? There is a sense in which education, discipleship, uh, go hand, what, what yes, the church calls discipleship, of course. they go hand in hand. I mean, we, we, we have been, you know, talking about hopefully not ad nauseum, but uh, add long time um, uh, about uh, education as raising our kids. Right. So, of course, education ought to be discipleship. Right. And discipleship from, you know, from people who are not the parents of the youth. And this is his point. I mean, so, so this is what classical education gets at. Now, he's not against, he, he even says this, that um, he's not against descriptive science. So when we talk about descriptive science, what we're talking about is the study of the way things are, studying like yes. how do students, uh, what, what, are, what are their habits, how do the, the, does the family work in this particular area? You know, so, th- but that doesn't become the standard. That, he says, has to remain in the service of a prescriptive ideal. So that might be the sign in the mall right? The, the, the descriptive science is the sign in the mall that says you are here. Yep. And the prescriptive is the story you're headed to. Well, I, I love that you said standard because he says the first premise of classical education is that the ideal types, ancient prescriptive pattern of truth, which served Christian and Jew, Roman and Greek remains the most durable and the most comprehensive. The modern affectation for pattern breaking is a bit of educational tomfoolery. <laughs> and he uses the word pattern several more times in that paragraph. And I absolutely loved that he chose to use the word pattern because we are, we are in an age where we use things and I would, I would have done the exact same thing, but I noticed this use of the word pattern. We say standard, right? We we're working on projects and we talk about benchmarks. We're basically talking about points, but really we shouldn't talk about points when we're talking about standards. Yes. A standard is a flag. Yep. And yet when we say standard, at least I, I picture a line I have to get over. Ah, okay. Right. Yes, uh-huh. Right. And, and, and a pattern really should be, it's a pattern of truth. And an ideal type is a pattern. That means that it is textured, Correct. right? It means that there's, there's more to it than just a line or a point. It's not the simplicity patterns that your wife used to cut out and <laughs> make the uh, the patterns after. There's a little more texture to yeah, it, right? The, the, absolutely. These are some different ways of, of, of making this particular this outfit, you know, this is how it could be worn by these different people. So there is texture to it, but it is that ideal type. So yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. So I'd, I'd love to, to hear you uh, respond to this, uh, this quote. Uh, so the modern era cannot be bothered with finding new answers to old questions like what is man and what are his purposes? 
Rather, it demands of its schools, how can modern man better get along in this complicated modern world? So I'd love to hear about that. Getting along. Come on now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this idea of getting along here, he says, far from suggesting any sort of Socratic self-knowledge or stoical self-restraint, implies the mastery of increasingly sophisticated methods of control. Methods. There you go. Over the environment and over others. So the first thing that comes to my mind, because I'm reading some, some things on my dissertation right now, but contraceptives is, is an example that comes to my mind immediately because of uh, some things I'm reading and and talking about. How do we conquer nature to the ends of letting man have his desires fulfilled in the way he wants to without any religious or moral restraints. Okay. And so what, what the modern man is looking to do, I'm taking an extreme example there, but really what the modern man is looking to do is to conquer nature, not as the Christian who wants to take dominion or as the pagan who simply wants to get along with nature, right. but literally subdue nature so that he can abolish it. Or, or is what Yeah, I mean, we're, ta- we're not talking about dominion. We're talking about crushing nature under one's boot heel. Right, exactly. Right. We're talking about all the worst nightmares of, of the 20th century and the hobnail boots. And I mean, that's, you know, that's you know, right now, we, we I think our society is swinging possibly back into a, a paganism in which we will fear nature but we're still living off of the momentum of trying to crush nature well i I think this whole um uh the new variant not new variant Mm -hmm. because moo new omicron variant (laughs) sorry all right so this whole idea that we're looking or or if if you watch the news at all and and you're looking at australia so we're going to kind of date this episode but you're looking at what's happening in australia and there is this i mean they're literally rounding up aboriginal folks and and stabbing them, forcing them to, to get um, vaccinated because there is this belief that they are going to eradicate. Didn't they just spend the last 40 years apologizing like to like forcing Aborigines to like go into schools and wear new clothes and not see their parents anymore. Didn't they take them, the children away from the parents to other sides of the country. They did terrible, terrible things. They just spent the last 40, 50 years apologizing and now they're doing this, but they're right. There's not a moment of hesitation in their minds. I am sure they're doing the right thing. And then a hundred years from now, their great grandkids are going to have to apologize Apologize for what they're, what they're doing. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's insanity. But, but Lewis pointed out, well, what what he called the, um, he called it the bar, the magician's bargain Mm. where when, when man tries to, um, subdue nature what it really comes down to is one group of men subduing other groups of men yes. by using nature it's which is satanic yeah it is it, it is the it's dark the sh- satanic mills it's the strive uh striving for power well he even says that in this in this same section where you talked about just learning to get along he says man's lust for power not truth feeds modern education right and it, it really lust for you know so you power absolutely yeah. right lust for technique lust for method these are the things that will keep us safe right right and that includes education yes so if we if we do this thing and then that thing then then nobody's going to starve to death and that is our highest end it it is well i I mentioned contraceptives a moment ago which is sort of the you know kind of uh, the reaching into the moral spectrum of it and this doesn't just include that um it is 
eradicating starvation. It is eradicating every kind of disease, you know, that's going to, to hurt man, but also the ability to do whatever we want to do. And prior to contraception, it was, what do we do about syphilis? Right. And, and so when penicillin comes along, all of a sudden we have conquered nature and this is proof that we don't need um, right. a, mor- a morality. So what is education? It's not about a morality. It's not about transcendence. It's not about this ideal man. It's about how do we become more efficient at conquering nature? Right. Which, you know, goes to, you know, Hicks talks about in, in, in this prologue, the can and the ought to. Right. And, and you know, like like so many Christian thinkers of the, of the 20th century, there's really just trying to face that head on and, and ring the alarm bells for us. And, and none of us heard them but really like <laughs> what is that ringing in the <laughs> yeah but i mean we're, we're talking about this this movement to I, like you talk about contraception or uh, you know we talk we talk about you, know, you talk you mentioned syphilis the government did terrible things to people yes on both of those counts, right? So first, we got to control syphilis. Let's take these terrible these populations and conduct terrible experiments on them and lie to them. Yep. And that's connected to eugenics. And we're going to take these same populations and we're going to forcefully neuter them. Right. I'm, I'm I'm missing the word for having one's productive powers removed, but that word. <laughs> yes. That that that. Yes. <laughs> and so I mean, it's just absolute wickedness. But why? The question that was asked was. How can we achieve this result? Yes. And that's it. Well, and that, that is the question that we're asking because the end of education for the, for the modernist that, that Hicks points out here is how do we accomplish, you know, the perfection, this utopic sort of society where, where we have mastered all of this and, and we're going to continue to, to progress in this direction. And that is the direction of education. And he says this, he says, um, well, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, and I'll come, come back and tie these together. He says uh, later on, he says, Medieval man plowed his feudal fields in a certain knowledge that he toiled at the imperfect fringes of God's handiwork. An outsider, when he looked up, he, um, he looked in at the divine substance an incalculable distance away. It was left for modern man to cast himself as an insider gazing out at the night heavens. Mm. And this comes back to where Lewis talks about the idea of he hated the, the term um, space because that indicated that this not some transcendent beings or order or anything like that. Right. It's just nothingness out there. Okay. So man now is at the center and it's how do we conquer even this? Right? Yeah. How, how do we continue to, to conquer that? So it's, it's a shift in paradigm that is I don't know, subtle, because I think a lot of us grew up in, in, in at least I did in, in a public education, assuming that this was the norm. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So I, I, in reading this, I'm, I'm put in mind uh, of an author I know I've brought up a lot over the last few months, but, but Jacques Ellul talking about technique. Mm-hmm. And I want to quote from his uh, technological society here. Um. Let's see. The reality is that uh, man no longer has any means with which to subjugate technique, which is not an intellectual or even, as some would have it, a spiritual phenomenon. It is, above all, a sociological phenomenon. And in order to cure or change it, one would have to oppose to it checks and barriers of a sociological character. So here he's talking about how you know technique basically takes on a power of its own, yep. right? So this is the way we have to educate. And so that, that takes on a power of its own. 
By such means alone, man might possibly bring action to bear upon it, but everything of a sociological character has had its character changed by technique. There is therefore nothing of a sociological character available to restrain technique because everything in society is its servant. Technique is essentially independent of the human being who finds himself naked and disarmed before it. Modern man divines that there is only one reasonable way out to submit and take what profit he can from what technique otherwise so richly bestows upon him. If he is of a mind to oppose it, he finds himself really alone. It has been said that modern man surrounded by techniques is in the same situation as prehistoric man in the midst of nature. Wow. <laughs> and you know, like Hicks in, in, in this chapter, he quotes and as he's talking about methods and techniques and the can and the yacht, he, he quotes from scripture, servants have ruled over us. There is none that doth deliver us out of their hand. Right. And that is what has happened in the world of education. Yep. Right. That, that method, we, we have been enslaved by education instead of turned into Kings by education. Right. And, and, and we assume that that's the normal way. Right. Right. That is because we're safer, we're better. We, you know, we're, we're striving toward this end, not being Kings, um, which does. And I, and just, this kind of thought just came to my head. This becomes a sort of substitute for a true dominion as Kings right over nature because it's a subjugation versus a dominion right yeah and it's a, there there's it's it's subtle in one sense but it's obviously very big it's it's like the beginning of a uh you know we're, we're two points when they when they begin to uh uh diverge you know at the very beginning they don't seem too far away but when they are further apart it's it's much clearer and i think that's exactly what happens yep for sure well one or two other things if we have time just to tackle, just want to bring up. He says in section four, um, he, he talks a little bit, uh, he, t he takes us a step further. He says, a good school does not just offer what the student or the parent or the state desires, but it says something about what these three ought to desire. So we're going to go back to that prescriptive. Okay? Mm -hmm. And today, you know, we, we've seen this politically come to its fruition in, you know, the, the recent debacle, I think in Virginia, where uh, they said that parents are the terrorists. We did an episode here a while back on the wolf at the schoolhouse door. Right. Right. So, so this, he, he's saying that there is a particular ought and it's not necessarily the student and he says, or the parent or what the state desires. And, and I, I want to qualify this because I don't think he's um, in any way trying to usurp the parent, but understanding what is fundamentally the patterns of truth, because the parent would want that, obviously, for their children. He says a school is fundamentally a normative, not a utilitarian institution governed by the wise, not by the many. So there's probably where some of the elitist um, right. accusations come in. But, you know, that's that, that what, what ends up happening is that, you know, and he, he talks about this uh, at length in the book, but we still create elites. We have these these elites who rule over the country and everyone's gone to Yale. Yeah. You know, but it's it's not about the content of their education. No, it isn't. It, it's uh, Charles Murray. Uh, and this is a great book for our listeners. If you haven't read Charles Murray, I think he's a libertarian um, Harvard uh, guy. But in 2005, published a book called Real Education. And his his assertion basically is in this book, the elites are going to rule anyway. 
why don't we educate yep. them in virtue in the proper things? Right. Um, right. You know, exactly. because no matter how much and we, expect that yes. ourselves, yes. right. Cause the elites don't always rule. Sometimes the people say we're done with you. Yes. Right. But they, they, they have to know what, what it is that is virtuous if yes. they're going to do that. That's right. So everybody should have a, a, an idea of what that is. He also says our fascination with technical um, means by the very nature of things subverts the supreme task of education, the cultivation of the human spirit. Um, so to teach the young uh, to know what is good, to serve it above self, to reproduce it, and to recognize that in knowledge lies this responsibility. And, and I think this is where he gets back to the, that ought right? Versus, you know, what is right. So this isn't just getting by, this isn't becoming more skillful uh, in, in the techniques, but this is, what does it mean to be virtuous? What, what does it mean to live for something? uh, What the the Romans call pietas or romanitas to live for something uh, above self, right? Serve above self to reproduce that, which is good, true and beautiful. Uh, And to recognize that in knowledge lies this responsibility. Yeah. What is that Peter Parker quote? (laughs) <laughs> I think you've given it a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, great power, baby. Great power because <laughs> yeah, yeah. great responsibility. Uh, so, well, I'll wrap up unless you have some other comments. I'll wrap up with this, this last paragraph here in the prologue. He says, during the Italian Renaissance, the rediscovery of Greece's longing and norms of its ideal type was accomplished by vast social changes and brilliant new discoveries as well as by a renewed sense of human worth and potential. Classical education refreshes itself at cisterns of learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint the strength to turn our cultural retreat into advance. Mm. So real progress lies in digging up those good things from the past. Yeah, the good things. Well, you know, so I'll, I'll just, uh, I guess I'll just end by, by saying that the, the, the title and the epigraph for the next chapter. Virtue is the fruit of learning. And then a John Bunyan quote. I come from the town of stupidity. It lieth about four degrees beyond the city of destruction. <laughs> and so there's a lot more good stuff to come from this book in, in upcoming episodes. We may not do it all in, in direct order, but we, we hope that you guys have enjoyed us talking about the descriptive versus prescriptive ways of, of looking at education and about the danger of being enslaved by method or, or, or technique. And, but really, most fundamentally, but how education is meant to make us like the ideal type and ultimately like Jesus Christ. Amen to that. God bless everybody. So long, everyone.